A quick producer's note, today we are bringing you an episode from our previous series, Pandemic Economics, on the future of cash. We'll be back on track next time with a new episode, but today we are asking, will the pandemic change the way we think about cash? In May, just a few months into the pandemic, the Federal Reserve released a study that said the use of cash was way down. This study found that 28%, almost a third of respondents, said they were avoiding cash. Two out of five reported that since the start of lockdowns, they were doing no in-person shopping whatsoever. And in June, the CDC offered guidance specifically for bank tellers, calling out, handling cash is a risk factor. Now, by how much? Who knows? But the point is, the whole idea of cash touching money, passing it around from person to person. It's feeling a little riskier these days. But the pandemic only accelerated a trend that was already underway. Back in 2018, another study by the Federal Reserve found that in the U.S., coins and bills make up only 30% of all transactions. So here's the question. How important is cash? Some countries like Sweden have pretty much gotten rid of cash already. And you might wonder if that could happen here. Shouldn't we just get rid of cash once and for all? But what's lost when cash is gone? Is everyone really ready to move past cash? Who needs cash? Who does it benefit? In this week's Deep Dive, we're going to take a close look at cash. We'll examine what two very different experiments, one in Mexico and one in India, tell us about the value of cash and the promise and perils of embracing a fully cashless world. I'm Tess Vigland. And I'm Eduardo Porter. We've been invited to have this series of conversations with University of Chicago scholars. This series is produced by the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics. Let's begin with a phone call I had with my mom before the pandemic. I called her while she was on her way to work in Mexico City. ¿A dónde va mi mamá? Ahorita la está llevando al centro. She was in an Uber, and that Uber driver was accepting cash as payment. I had no idea that Uber accepts cash. That was a surprise for me, too. Turns out that Mexico City passed a law that allows Uber to accept cash there. I didn't realize that Uber accepts cash ever, anywhere. I wanted to know, how did this affect Uber drivers? One reason that this is so surprising is that in many poorer countries, like Mexico, where cash is in heavy use, you often hear the argument that cash enables tax evasion. So that allows economic transactions to pretty much stay off the books, and it greases the wheels of crime. Generally, governments would like to see cash gone. Uber sees things differently. Femke van Schoenhoven, a product designer for Uber, gave a talk at a London conference. As we wanted to grow and expand Uber, we realized that there were some markets that we were really struggling to capture because not all markets 
are digitally connected or have digital payments. So in markets like Latin America, credit card penetration is pretty low. So we knew that if we wanted to continue growing, that we had to introduce cash. Cash is accepted by Uber in more than 400 cities worldwide. In Latin America, payments in cash now account for more than half of all trips. Let's go back to Mexico. Now here, lots of payments are made in cash, but Uber was only allowed to accept cash payments in Mexico City following a Supreme Court ruling there in 2018. Before that, whether Uber could take cash varied from city to city, and this created an opportunity, a quasi-natural experimental setup. Economist Fernando Álvarez is from Argentina. He is a native Spanish speaker like me, and he knows Mexico City, my hometown, pretty well. He used data from Uber's cash use there to ask some larger questions. But the broader picture uh, is that, uh, as you sort of mentioned, there is this uh, uh, widespread across countries, um, mostly central banks, but other agencies too, of kind of trying to get, trying to incentivize of societies not to use cash. Alvarez examined what happened when both cash was banned and when cash was introduced as a form of payment. This Uber data gave Alvarez a great window into how important cash still remains for a lot of Mexicans. So what did you see? So say when suddenly cash was allowed in a particular state, you'd see the use of Uber increase, especially amongst lower income people? Yes. So you see that Uber... um, our estimates is that when they rent, when cash enters, the number of trips, the number of fares, number of active, you know, not only number of people, but the total number of trips and the trip per person, all sorts of measures increase tremendously. You know, let's say 150%. And this is a large increase. I grew up in Mexico City. I can help you understand the geography. The metropolitan area is an urban colossus that encompasses not just Mexico City proper, but also parts of the adjoining state of Mexico. Until that Mexican Supreme Court decision, Uber was regulated differently across that border. It could accept cash for rides originating in the state of Mexico, but not Mexico City. The court ruled that cash could be used everywhere. Would you see like a kink at the border between... When you cross the border, do you growth rates before and after? This is a typically discontinuity design. Even though, as you know, if you're in Mexico, you will be in downtown in one of the tall buildings. You will be looking at the border, this imaginary border. Nothing happened there. But then the trips will go up. Uber riding in the state of Mexico didn't change much. But in the city, it surged. The growth rate will be 40, 50 percent bigger in the year before and after the introduction of cash. And then you look at the year after in which cash has been introduced in both of them. You don't see, na- you don't see anything in the border. But the, the change is much larger, much larger than this 40%, because if you go in the outskirts of the state of Mexico, they are much poorer, and then the effect is much important. That's reporter Lucina Malicia Friedman. She's talking to Jose, another Uber driver in Mexico City. She's asking him how things have changed since Uber began accepting cash payments. Jose tells her that his business increased by 50%. Not surprisingly, the highest growth was in poorer areas, where many people don't have credit cards. The poorer you are, the larger the share of trips that you pay in cash. That's uh, very, very clear. And it's clear in all the research on use of cash. This is not uh, something uh, we would have been surprised if this would have not been the case. 
people often understand affordability too narrowly. Before the Mexican Supreme Court ruling that allowed people to pay for Uber in cash, there were people in Mexico City who could afford Uber and would have really benefited from its services, but they didn't use it because they didn't have the necessary financial tool, a credit card. And when cash is the only tool people have to pay for their daily needs, removing it can be very costly. Hello. Um, Hi, Professor Rajan. How are you doing? Very well. How are you? Raghuram Rajan is a professor of finance at the Booth School of Business. He knows a lot about the usefulness of cash in poorer countries. As the former head of the Indian Central Bank, he witnessed up close what happens when a country is suddenly deprived of it. Cash is anonymous. Cash is easy to transact with. Uh, The other side knows they don't need to see your face ever again. If they accept the cash, that transaction gets done once and for all. So uh, cash is a source of trust, uh, certainly in the kinds of transactions that they do. Um, So that's that's good. In all these uh, emerging uh, developing economies, uh, there's a lot of informal business. Uh, These businesses don't necessarily have access to bank accounts. Even if they had, it's not clear they would want... uh, the money being documented as it flows through those bank accounts. Uh, And so uh, these uh, people uh, find it much more convenient to deal in cash. It's not just Uber. We see this all over Mexico. All of that street vendor's business is in cash. If the government were to take it away, he would go bust. Also, if he took credit cards, he'd have to pay taxes. In cash, it's easy to avoid them. Fewer than three out of 10 Mexicans own a credit card. But even in the United States, a lot of people don't carry plastic in their pockets. Only about three quarters of consumers have at least one card, according to a study by the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. And still, some governments see cash as a problem. The 500 and 1,000 rupee notes hoarded by anti-national and anti-social elements will become just worthless piece of paper. We're now going halfway across the world to India, where a different experiment taught new things about cashless society. A couple of days after Rajan stepped down as head of India's central bank, the Indian government made a surprise announcement. To break the grip of corruption and black money, we have decided that the 500 rupee and 1000 rupee currency notes presently in use will no longer be legal tender from midnight to night. At the time, a 500 rupee note was worth about seven or eight dollars, and the 1,000 rupee note was about 15 dollars. India announced that uh, both 500 rupee notes as well as 1,000 rupee notes would be taken out of circulation in the sense that if you had any of those notes, you could take them to a bank and deposit them, but they would no longer be legal tender. You couldn't make purchases uh, with them. 
Now, that was very important because uh, at that time, uh, around 87.5% uh, of the money stock uh, outstanding was in the form of those notes. The rest were smaller notes. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi had a simple goal. He had run for office largely on the promise that he would rid India of endemic corruption. The idea behind the demonetization was that uh, a lot of people had evaded taxes and were holding uh, large amounts of this money in their basement um, uh, and hoping to use it for purchases down the line. And if the government demonetized this money, uh, people would have to come clean and say, look, I was holding some of this money uh, and here are the taxes that I haven't paid so far on it. The problem is that Modi's government did not immediately offer new bills to replace those it withdrew. It was acting in secret, ostensibly to catch the bad guys red-handed. Ordering millions of new banknotes to be printed, he thought, would have given the game away. Media reports in India say at least 47 people, including bank employees, have died since a demonetization scheme was announced more than 10 days ago. Some reportedly died of shock, while others committed suicide. Millions continue to line up at banks every day to withdraw money or exchange the now worthless 500 and 1,000 rupee notes. Asia's largest slum, Dharavi, in Mumbai, is famous for its leather. Ram Bandotkar has been making bags and belts here for 15 years. But he says he's now struggling and not because of any issues with his products. In the past year, my business is down by 60 to 70 percent. It's not like before now. After the note ban and the general sales tax, my business has suffered greatly. What, what happened? What was it? What was the cost? So at least for a while, you could take out only a fraction of uh, of the money stock that was uh, that was needed. Uh, so take for example your vegetable seller. That vegetable seller deals in cash. He uh, sells you vegetables in cash, uses that to buy from the uh, middleman in the vegetable market. And uh, unless he has uh, a bank account and has the ability to deposit checks, etc., he's in a pickle. Raja knew about the plan in advance. He opposed it, foreseeing the hardship it would cause hundreds of millions of Indians that were overnight deprived of money. And he was skeptical that people would actually declare their ill-gotten wealth and pay taxes on it. What do we know about the success it had in reducing tax evasion and getting people to pay back taxes? Um, Well, I I think in terms of people declaring uh, these these currency notes as, uh, you know, ill-gotten wealth and paying taxes on it, it was pretty much a total failure. Nobody did that. The government in Delhi also hoped the shock to the cash-based economy would encourage everybody to buy into the formal financial system get bank accounts and credit cards and whatnot. But that seems to have been a dud too. It is true that during the period uh, uh, immediately after demonetization, uh, many people were looking for ways to pay other than currency. And so there was some boost to electronic payments, including uh, electronic wallets. And some of that may have, have lasted. A lot of it came down though, uh, after when the money came back into circulation. And 
any uh, sort of uh, idea that longer term uh, people would get lo- would use less cash uh, again it's hard to see that in the data so maybe it reduced the trend a little bit but uh, cash is still king uh, in india in the end india's experiment in going cashless seems to have been an experiment with substantial costs and few if any benefits India made, I think, two mistakes in this exercise. One, they removed uh, the 500 rupee note, which was extensively used in transactions. The second mistake was the money to replace that wasn't printed at the time uh, that the demonetization was announced. So people actually had to do without any means of exchange for some time. That may have caused lasting damage to the economy. The Reserve Bank of India has now revealed the latest data on demonetization. This has been out in its annual report that is being released today. And according to this report, nearly, nearly all of the currency that was demonetized post Prime Minister Modi's announcement has actually come back to the central bank. However, today the official numbers are out. And guess what? 99.3% of old currency is back in the system. There are, for sure, lots of reasons that governments are pushing away from cash and towards electronic payments. It's also, I mean, to some extent, uh, something that illegal businesses use. Uh, we know that, uh, you know, drug firms uh, rely a lot on high denomination, uh, uh, drug enterprises rely a lot on high denomination notes. So, so that, that is the dark side of, uh, of informality, of the lack of transparency associated with cash. And of course, you don't pay bribes with check, you pay bribes with tons of cash. Um, Now, uh, the governments uh, obviously want uh, to be able to see uh, some of the flows of these business activities and also to get a hand on some of it through taxes. And so they would like to push more into the formal, uh, formal sector. And of course, governments like information. They want to know who's doing what, where, and how. And so there's a whole uh, privacy aspect to money, uh, which certainly, once you go electronic, becomes front and center. It's not just about taxes and stamping out crime and corruption. Bringing people into the formal banking system can provide a lot of benefits. It allows them to establish credit histories and gain access to credit. And by putting their savings in the financial system, they can protect themselves from inflation which chips away at the value of cash. If I were to ask you, do you think we're going to have cash around 20 years from now? Do you think we will? My suspicion is we, you know, we won't eliminate it completely, but we will reduce its use considerably. uh, And certainly in developed countries where formal systems are much more uh, prevalent. It seems to me kind of like an amazing development just in human history, right? From shells to gold to, you know, fiat currency to no paper currency at all to electronic transactions. Before we get from here to there, though, before cash loses its two jobs as a simple store of value and a means to transact, everybody has to have access to the alternative. Fernando Álvarez explains this in terms of the value that was created when Uber was allowed to take cash across Mexico City. Before the Supreme Court ruling, many rides did not happen simply because riders did not have a credit card or did not want to use it. These rides would have been valuable to them, though, 
I mean, the experiment shows us that once Uber riders could pay in cash, rides soared. That means that before the change, the people of Mexico City were losing out because they were leaving something of value to them on the table. Then what we did is three very large experiments together with Uber. Alvarez and his collaborators also conducted three large field experiments that involved more than 100,000 Uber riders within the state of Mexico. We want them to answer the following question. So if there is a ban in the state of Mexico, what will be the loss for the consumers? They offered a variety of price discounts and credits to measure how much people valued the opportunity to pay with cash. They might offer a discount to riders who paid by credit or who registered a credit card with Uber within a certain time frame. We take a good and then we raise prices. You reduce a little bit, we raise prices more. Offering a service at different prices allows us to put a number on how much people benefit from that service. And in this case, the service is not just an Uber ride. We are not trying to understand purely how much people value to use Uber. We are trying to understand how much people value being able to use cash. The good in question is an Uber ride paid in cash. And Alvarez found that in the state of Mexico, that's a good with a lot of value. Despite the incentives to switch to credit cards, for many riders, cash was still the preferred means of payment. Alvarez went to the Bank of Mexico and gave a talk about his paper. And he said they were a little surprised by the numbers and still very determined to get rid of cash. I can imagine, say you're in Mexico, you're in the middle of this horrendous drug war. Yes, yes. You're looking for any margin. Yeah, totally. No, I, I'm, uh, and I think most of, the, most of them, they're thinking, if, if you ask me, if I had to elucidate what's the main concern, it's not just the drug war, but just informality. Because that's a big, it's a, it's a, you know, if we live in the U.S., we don't quite understand the sense in which and the degrees of informality in the sense that it's not only people that live in Islam, it will be like, you know, you go to the dentist and the dentist assistant probably will be some kind of, in some sort of limbo in terms of the way it's hired and the way it's paid in cash. And, you know, and they think that this is probably related to it. So I, I understand this. And it is because of this informality that Rajan doesn't think it's a good idea for governments to simply get rid of cash. But the re- real uh, issue for many poor people is they have no contact with the formal financial system. And the contact that they have tends to be too costly, fees for bank accounts and so on, uh, and, and huge fees for remittances, uh, especially cross-border remittances. And uh, it's extremely important that we encourage financial innovation uh, to bring these costs down. There is no reason why they should stay so high. And, and this is where I think rather than focusing on cash as something to be eliminated, uh, instead focus on getting everybody into the formal financial system, uh, but with, uh, at relatively low cost. And, uh, you know, convince them that there is some value to building a record in the formal financial system because that can be the source of, uh, of new, uh, of, you know, uh, of a credit history which opens doors for you. Of course, you can also build a bad record. So we should have some way that people after a certain period are forgotten by the system and can start again. But I think that we need to try and make the uh, formal financial system much more inclusive 
and to the extent that that also reduces the use of cash, so be it. This series was produced by Story Mechanics. Our producers are Dana Bialik, Camille Peterson, and Devin Robbins. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. Our show is mixed and scored by Story Mechanics. Our interns are Ram Balasubramanian and Sophie Lee. I'm Eduardo Porter. And I'm Tess Vigland. 